agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by, well, I was going to say my conservative counterpart, but actually maybe my more left counterpart, because uh, originally we had scheduled this to be a Trey and Ken show, but today I am subbing for Trey. He couldn't make it. And so I am joined by my, I'll call you Ken, my faculty colleague, professor of law, Ken Katkin. How about that? That's perfect. Okay, there we go. Well, before we get started with our uh, show today, I first want to thank a, a kind of a strange supporter, not not that he's necessarily personally strange, but uh, Bo, a longtime listener who wrote, this is payment as I unsubscribe. Jay's crocodile tears are unbelievable. Half a million dead Afghans didn't move him. Some trapped spies did. And I, I don't think I've ever we've ever gotten a supporter who was leaving the show to give us a pledge of support. But uh, as I told Bo, we were happy to get it. And I suggested he may be listening on shows that Jay isn't on like this show. And Bo, if you're out there, thank you so much uh, for supporting us on Venmo. And as folks know, we also uh, have Patreon and PayPal. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you not only get that second full-length episode each week that we're now releasing it at the same time as our regular available-to-all episode, you also get ad-free versions of everything, other stuff at different levels of support. Check it all out, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you'd like that bonus show, but you're not in a position where you can financially support the podcast right now, Totally not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure that bonus show gets out to you every single week. Today, we are going to be talking about, well, Afghanistan, as you might expect, more on COVID, the House approving the $3.5 trillion budget blueprint, the Supreme Court's ruling on the eviction moratorium, the remain in Mexico policy, the court's ruling on that in Biden versus Texas, uh, sanctions on Trump attorneys, more and with more to come, the House January 6th committee. And well, we're not going to get to all of that on the regular show. I seriously doubt it. So a lot of that's going to move on into our bonus show. But before we get to any of that, we'll just take a quick break and kick things off. All right, Ken. So I thought we would start off well with what's clearly the main story of this week, and that is Afghanistan. The situation took a decided turn for the worst this week with the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport, which took the lives of over 100 people, including 13 U.S. service members, and injured many more. The bombing was the work of ISIS-K, an extremist group that's in competition with the Taliban. Now, in response to the bombing, President Biden said, we will not forgive, we will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. The president also said that the attack won't speed up the U.S. withdrawal, which is scheduled to end on Tuesday, October 31st. And to this point, the United States has evacuated over 100,000 people, though there are still Americans and a number of Afghans who hope to be evacuated before the U.S. leaves the region. And that hard deadline that the president has set of August 31st has been a point of contention between the U.S. and many of our NATO allies who've argued for more time. The Taliban, though, has been adamant about the U.S. keeping to that end of August departure date, promising consequences should the U.S. extend its presence. So 
Ken, what's your read of this? Not just the bombing, but we haven't talked in a while and you haven't had a chance to weigh in on this, but your overall sense of how the withdrawal has been handled by the Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, um, I heard you and Jay both uh, uh, criticizing the president to different to different extents, of course. Jay was much more critical than you were, but I'm really not critical at all. I mean, to me, I would sort of, as, as I think you did in your question, I, I would separate the question of was it the right decision to leave Afghanistan now um, from the question of um, given that we're leaving, that decision has been made to leave Afghanistan now, is, is Biden uh, managing the withdrawal uh, properly? Um, you know, I, I do think it's the right decision to leave Afghanistan now, but I actually feel like I'm less sure about that um, than I am about the second question, which is I, I'm 100 um, percent thinking that Biden has handled things absolutely as perfectly as could be done. And I, I think all of the criticism of him is either, um, you know, in bad faith coming from Republicans or is just um, um, maybe accepting some 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 presentation of facts that I don't think are accurate um, that have, have kind of gotten out there into the into the discourse. And uh, I, I actually am amazed that um, he got, you know, he's 100,000 people have been withdrawn since he made that announcement. Um, there was the one incident, um, of course, this week that looked bad, but that didn't come from the Taliban. That came from um, um, Al Qaeda K or, or ISIS K or whatever they're mm -hmm. called, who are actually enemies of the Taliban. And you have to ask the comparative question: You know, would groups like that have also launched attacks if we weren't withdrawing? And I, I think they would, and there'd be a longer time frame in which they would. So I don't see that any choices that that Biden um, has made have actually come out wrong. Um, given the decision that we're withdrawing now. Well, I, let me let me put it to you this way, then. It, it seems to me that, I mean, I, I obviously you heard last week's show. I, I have I take issue with that, but I'm not a Republican arguing in bad faith. But, but I would think that right. at, at the very least, one could say that that August 31st deadline, that is, as far as I can tell, essentially arbitrary. There's no reason for August 31st. And, and it seems to me it's it's a good argument to say that, well, we are starting our withdrawal and it will take as long as it takes to ensure a safe and orderly withdrawal, as opposed to having a, this sort of date in the sand, as it were. That, that just seems to me more to be more political than based on operational necessity. So what's your what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I don't read it that way, but I'm really glad that you raised that question. So I, I think there's some very good reasons that he's um, saying that date. And also um, uh, keeping in mind that there's nothing in the world that would stop him from con continuing to, to do a few things after um, August 31st as well. In fact, he said that he would. Um, but in terms of why have it, I, I think there's a few context contextual reasons it's absolutely necessary. Um, one is that Biden himself saw uh, 10 years ago um, when, when President Obama um, first uh, raised the question of um, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And um, what Obama wanted to do was withdraw from Afghanistan, but he wanted to do it along the types of lines that, that, that you're talking about. He wanted to be prudent. He wanted to consult with his generals. He wanted to um, figure out you know, how, how to stage it and how to time it. And, and um, Biden was the one who was saying, no, we just need to withdraw now. And, and what, what Biden saw actually happen uh, was that the generals in the Pentagon, once they were seated that level of respect and authority, you know, one, once they were told, OK, we, we need to figure out a, a timeline for getting out and and you guys need to figure out how we can do this in, in the best way. Um, you know, the Pentagon 
absolutely, you know, even though there's a diversity of views, there's some liberal generals, there's some conservative generals, none of them want to be the ones that are seen as having lost a war. And so when the, when the, when the idea is we're going to withdraw, um, and then there's the discretion ceded to the Pentagon, well, you need to figure out how to stage this properly. Um, what they actually did was they rolled Obama so badly that we never withdrew. And and that's clearly what Biden was concerned about. And it would happen again that unless he publicly says, like, this is the date, you know, if he does something along the lines that, that you're talking about, I have no doubt that once again, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be out by the time, you know, the, the, the 2024 election rolls around. Um, and so I don't think that can be done. If you're serious about saying, you know, we need to get out, then you actually need to have a date certain, because if you say, well, it depends on military and operational necessities and you leave the determination of military and operational necessities to the Pentagon, we're, we're never getting out. OK, well, um, yeah. this, okay so that's I, one thing I think. The other thing I think is that um, the, the August uh, 31 deadline is is um, it's mainly directed at the Pentagon and at telling them that he doesn't want them slowballing it. It's not really mainly directed at um, anything that's happening in Afghanistan because we'll have lots of levers of power in Afghanistan um, after August 31st as well. And we may not even pull all the troops out by August 31st, even though he keeps saying that we are. But even if we do, even if we give up the Kabul airport on August 31st, um, first of all, we have substantially all the Americans out already. So if it's about getting Americans out, they're out. You know, the only ones that are still there are Americans who are actually in the Taliban and stuff like that and who don't and who don't want to leave. And certainly there are some people like that. Um, the 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 uh, um, you know, the, the in terms of all the other people, the the, the um, Afghans who helped us and worked for us. You know, remember, we have pulled out 100000 people. Um, other countries like the Western European countries are still going to be in there pulling people out and can help us pull people out. And there actually are lines of dialogue opened with the Taliban. And we have other levers of um, um, influence with the Taliban um, that I think will continue after August 31st, um, other than just um, uh, military force. You know, the Taliban needs access to international credit markets and things like that. Um, it, it can't really survive uh, as a government without some levels of foreign aid and foreign trade. And so I, I, I think that the idea that once the military pulls out, that means we have no levers of influence or power there. I don't really buy that either. Yeah, I, wa I want to come back to, to that specific thing. But before we do, I, I want to go back to the, the, the first point you made about that date certain. And, and I think, you know, there's maybe something to that, that idea that you just at some point, as painful as it is, has to have to kind of pull off the Band-Aid or yank it off, basically. But even if I grant you that point, and I'm not entirely convinced, but I, it's not an unreasonable argument. I think to me, it's it's hard not to see that at least there was a significant intelligence failure because up until right before it happened, military planners and, and, and agencies were saying, well, you know, we think the Taliban will take over in maybe six, 12, 18 months. It's not a foregone conclusion. The president was saying that. And yet, we saw in the space of days, not months, not weeks, but days, the Taliban take over everything. I mean, surely you're not saying that that military intelligence operation was handled flawlessly. No, but what I would say is this, that it really doesn't matter. Right. So it, it, it was absolutely inevitable. And, you know, there's no intelligence failure about this, that the Taliban will be taking over when we leave. Right. That's just inevitable. After all, the Taliban were in charge before we came and there, there wasn't, you know, nobody projected that they, they could be staved off forever. So if you're talking about, OK, but there was an intelligence failure about how quick the collapse would be. Um, 
I don't really know why that matters. You know, I mean, the, the concept that we are leaving is necessarily implying that the Taliban are taking over. If that happens in 11 days or in six months, um, I, I'm not sure I see why that is, is uh, important, really. It, you know, we, we're ceding the country to the same Taliban group that ran it before we came in there. We never would have came in there at all if it wasn't for September 11th. So the, the Taliban would have been running that country the whole time. They're running it again now. We wouldn't have gone to war back then just to just to stop the Taliban from from running it. And so I, I don't I just don't get um, why I, I agree there was some some sort of intelligence failure about the timing, but I don't really agree understand why that's germane to the decision making. I can explain why it it would be germane to me is that okay. uh, if if I believed that it would take the Taliban a number of weeks or months even to take over the country, include especially, obviously, the capital, Kabul, well, then I would think, well, then there's a very good chance that we will be able to uh, have an orderly withdrawal without mass panic, without all sorts of, and without, without a major humanitarian and refugee crisis that we'll be able to manage. But if I if I think that actually the Taliban will take over the country even before we complete our withdrawal, that changes my operational planning a whole lot. That means that instead of having, say, 6,000 Marines on the ground after the fact, I have maybe 10,000 Marines on the ground before the fact so I can prepare. And that, that's to me how that intelligence estimate of when the Taliban's going to take over would affect at least, I would think, my operational planning for the uh, withdrawal operation. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that, and I think that's a good point. But I guess the one thing I'd say to that is, it it, it depends what we're actually planning for, right? If, if the operational planning was to get all the Americans out, I, I think we we succeeded. You know, all the Americans that are, that want to be out are out. Um, if the operational planning was to to plan to get um, all the Americans, oh, I'm sorry, all the Afghans who actually worked for the Americans out. Um, the verdict's out on whether we've succeeded or how close we've come. You know, there's a lot of um, suggestions out there that we failed miserably on that front. But I, I think, you know, we're not I don't know how we know. I mean, I, 100,000 people have come out in the past week or two, and I'm not sure exactly who they are or exactly how many more people that actually worked for us are, are, are there. But I, I think that I wouldn't write off that part of it as a failure either at this point. And finally, if, if the idea is that we're going to be able to get everybody out who, who wants to get out. Um, you know, people who don't want to live under the Taliban, you know, then we're talking about getting millions and millions of people out in, in a country of 38 million. And I really don't know what kind of operational planning um, could have sure. could have planned for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. With that. I, I think I'll just add a slight uh, correction. I'd say that most of the Americans, maybe the vast majority of the Americans who want to get out are out. But I, I don't know if we could say that at this point, all of them are. But that's a maybe a, a small correction. But I'm sure that some listeners might have commented on that. But, you know, it, it, you're, you're right. I think I said substantially all because I, okay. I agree with you. There you you go. can't say all. Yeah. But but I, but I, I do think that the, the numbers, um, who, the numbers who want to get out and didn't get out. I, I think it's, we could say at this point that it would be less than 100 people that you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a small number in, as a percentage of, of all the Americans who wanted out that, that are there, that were there. Yeah. So, you know. Wait, can I say one more thing? Yeah, about no, that? please do. Yeah. yeah there's, 50, there's 50. I looked on this um, website that the, um, the, the, the Pentagon keeps about people missing in action from all foreign wars. And there, there's, there's 51,000 Americans in all foreign wars since World War II that were, were never came back and are missing yeah. right now most of them by now of course are dead but when you compare that number 51,000 
Um, uh, and that includes wars that we won. You know, it doesn't just include Vietnam. It includes World War II. Um, 51,000 Americans went missing in action. You know, the, 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 the dozens that might go missing in action from this, it's, it's probably the best performance ever by the United States mm-hmm. in getting all Americans out of a theater of war. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, uh, well, we talked earlier about ISIS gay, and, you know, it, it occurred to me that this, this action, this bombing on their part uh, might suggest to me, at least, that the Taliban might not be in a position to prevent terrorist groups from operating in Afghanistan, even if they wanted to do that, which to me is still very much an open question, even though this particular terrorist group is no fan of the Taliban because they're, you know, they're too, too uh, uh, moderate, the Taliban is for them. But it seems to me that this is even more of an argument, at least potentially, for our not leaving in the first place. Now, I've gone back and forth on this because I think it's a difficult, difficult call either way. But I ended up uh, just uh, coming to the conclusion that, you know, if we could keep in a force of, you know, two, three, four, five thousand troops, even indefinitely for generations, that would maybe be worth the cost. And this, to me, would seem to go to that sort of reasoning. And I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm much more open to that argument. I, I'm not 100 percent sure which side I'm on on the decision to, to leave. I, I do think it's important to see this decision correctly. It's a decision between leaving immediately, which we're doing, or staying forever, which is, um, yeah. you know, the alternative. I, I, I don't really believe it's a it's a serious. Some people are, you know, say, oh, we should leave, but just not right now. But I think right now is as good a time as there's ever going to be to leave. And so either we're going to be deciding you know, we're staying forever um, or we're leaving right now. But staying forever does have some appeal. And and I, I, I think I, I, I can't discount that, that you um, could be right. And all I can say is I can think of counter arguments, but I can't even think sure. of which side I'm actually yeah. on. And uh, um, but I think some counter arguments might be um, that, um, uh, you know, that although um, uh, I, I can't disagree at all. The, the Taliban um, being the governing power in Afghanistan um, probably increases the chances that some terrorist group, even if it's not the Taliban themselves, um, uses is able to use Afghanistan as a staging ground for, for terrorism. But I would say, you know, right now, because mainly mainly because of the disaster that George W. Bush wreaked on the whole Middle East, um, it, 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 that's hardly unique to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's failed states all over the Middle East. You know, Syria is basically still a failed state. And and so you can have um, uh, th- that's a problem that is not limited to Afghanistan. And, you know, the more we get a lid on Afghanistan, the more that might just move some of that activity uh, elsewhere. And so it doesn't um, necessarily prevent that activity from happening. Right. It's kind of a game of whack-a-mole now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so I, th- I think that is one flaw with that. Another flaw with that, I, I think, or, and again, I'm not sure, I'm just saying these arguments, I'm not sure which side is even right. But I, but I, another, another sort of counter argument would be that um, I, I think that um, the, the, the Taliban, um, uh, you know, it may, it may actually, um, the, the, the fact that um, terrorism launched from Afghanistan might destabilize the Taliban uh, government might be a reason that some of these terrorist groups that are, you know, if they're if if you've got groups, I mean, I know ISIS-K is not necessarily sympathetic to the Taliban, but 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 I've got to think some Islamist groups would rather have the Taliban in power than have the sure. um, U.S.-backed occupation yeah. government in Agreed. power. And so so they don't have a great interest in destabilizing uh, the Taliban government, perhaps. 
you know, because any terrorist attack launched from Afghanistan is definitely going to bring the U.S. armed forces back into Afghanistan. And there's there's no doubt about that. And, and Biden said that and, and every American president would say that. In fact, he said we're going to go anywhere in the world to catch the people that did this attack yesterday. So I, I don't know that they have a, a, a um, I, I mean, I know there's all different groups with all different incentives, but I don't think most of the Islamists there um, would would necessarily want to um, uh, um, have the U.S. Uh, come yeah. and return and, and push the Taliban out. So I, I think those are the sort of maybe to me the countervailing considerations. But I mean, I, I actually would think that the argument for keeping a permanent occupation, which which I'm also sympathetic to, I don't think this is necessarily a wrong argument, um, is that we were able to do a lot of good protecting human rights of a lot of people, particularly in yeah. the cities like Kabul, you know, for 20 years there. Um, and, um, you know, there was a cost in American lives and, and American money, but maybe maybe the the the, um, the benefits that we were able to achieve in, in human rights um, uh, and in, in spreading the idea of human rights and in protecting people's security, you know, it might have been it might have been worth it. And there's going to be a loss. But but I, I think that is, that would be a permanent condition. You know, we'd really have to make a permanent decision um, that, that we're going to we're going to we're going to protect those kind of human rights militarily. In, in in Afghanistan at the periodic cost of of, of human of American service members and and of yeah. an occupation for, forever I think to, to be able to be able to do that kind of good yeah I, I certainly I certainly agree with that you know the other issue I wanted to bring up and, and Jay and I touched on it a little bit last week was and this is definitely a for the future kind of conversation well, at least in, for policymakers but us recognition of the Taliban, the question of when and under what conditions. It seems like Russia and China are, will probably be leading the pack on this. But, you know, as you pointed out, the, the Taliban government desperately needs their assets unfrozen. They need access to international markets and finance, uh, ideally international aid. And uh, in the midst of all this, they are facing what is certainly a significant brain drain. They're, they're very concerned about all the people who are being evacuated. And they've you know issued pleas to, you know, don't asking the U.S. government to not evacuate these people, making it hard for skilled workers to get out of the country because they understand that they they need these people and they need this, these sort of resources in what's already an incredibly poor country for them to just be uh, an utterly failed state. Yeah, I mean, that's those are the kind of levers I was talking about. I, I think it's possible that the U.S. will um, reopen diplomatic relations with Afghanistan, you know, not immediately. But that's certainly one of the levers that we have. You know, they, they do want that already. And, uh, um, you know, when we're talking about getting Americans out of there, you know, I, I'm sure we'll be able to get Americans out of there if, if that's the price the Afghanis have to pay after the end. If that's the price the Taliban has to pay after the end of the occupation to get U.S. diplomatic recognition. It's going to be harder to negotiate that they should have to let the, all the all the millions of Afghans who want to leave leave. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of countries um, would, wouldn't do that. And and th there's not really countries that want to take the millions of Afghans who want to leave either. So, you know, I think, you know, people keep raising the ante on how many people are supposed to be exfiltrated. But I, I think, you know, negotiating to get certain individuals out um, seems like that's a pretty easy price for the Taliban to pay to achieve some kind of level of um, diplomatic normalcy, which I think they need to achieve. Yeah. And, and I would expect that, assuming they make make some sort of a 
concerted effort to honor the commitments that they made, uh, and I think those will certainly be violated in, in some in some instances, that we will end up probably recognizing that government, maybe not within the next few months, but I would expect it wouldn't be it wouldn't be necessarily years before that happens. Yeah, I, I have the same prediction as you, but I think that making that prediction also is necessarily um, um, agreeing with the idea that we have other levers of power other than military power right. um, that we can bring to bear on Afghanistan. So that the idea that that's out there in the public discourse that, well, as soon as we take out these last 2000 troops on August 31st, we have no more influence in Afghanistan. I, I just think that's really wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Taliban knows this. Uh, they, they've been in charge before, and certainly the U.S. knows this. It's one thing to take over a country. It's another thing to actually govern it, and uh, governing Afghanistan is uh, no simple feat, no matter who you are. You know, and yep. I, I wanted to ask you, move, moving into the, pol- the politics of this, a couple of things. One thing, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but particularly on the right, there's a word that I hear regularly in regards to Afghanistan. That word is humiliation. And so uh, first off, I guess I wanted to get your take on whether or not this is a humiliation for the United States and why it seems to be much more of a comment we're hearing, at least I am, on the right than on the left. And then secondly, what you take as the politics of this, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this is maybe the best time to do this. And certainly you could argue politically President Biden would want to do it as early as possible so it could have minimal effect hanging on into the midterms and then in 2024 if he decides to run again. So what are your thoughts on that? On whether the U.S. is uh, humiliated by let, leaving let, Afghanistan? Let, let's I mean, uh, do you find it do you find it? at all striking or interesting or unusual that we're hearing that almost exclusively from the right rather than the left. I, I don't know. That just struck me as, as worth comment worth yeah. commenting on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it's humiliating, but I, I certainly do hear um, the, the right wing saying that. I mean, I think it's just really, it's a, it's a domestic political cudgel that they're trying to hit president Biden with, right. That, um, you know, to say that, um, this is humiliating for the United States is to say that um, Joe Biden is a, an unfit president who has humiliated the United States. And so I think that's the main purpose of rhetoric like that. After all, it was Trump, excuse me, it was Trump who made the deal with the Taliban more than a year ago um, that um, if they would not attack our troops for a year, he'd have the troops entirely out at the end of the year. And nobody, um, no right wingers then were saying that that was humiliating. Right. No, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. What about the and that's generally my take on it. What about the uh, the political implications of this? I mean, we've seen President Biden's approval rating take a hit. Now, that's a combination, obviously, of not just this, but covid, which we'll get to in a little bit. But uh, do do you see this as having any sort of longer term political ramifications for uh, for President Biden or Democrats? Uh, yeah, long term political benefit for Biden and Democrats. Um, I think it's like a rubber band. You know, you pull it one way and then it flies back much harder the other way, because the um, remember that everything that um, uh, Biden has done, you know, un- until people started seeing the the pictures on television and hearing all the right wing commentary, um, all, Americans were overwhelmingly in favor of, of withdrawing from uh, Afghanistan. And and even today. Um, I think Americans still answer the overwhelmingly answer the question. Yes, we need to withdraw from Afghanistan. It's just, I, you know, they would say, I don't like the way this is looking right now while it's happening. Um, but it only looks right now while it's happening. You know, you only see that look while it's actually happening. And Americans have a short memory. And, and I think, you know, a year from now, you know, we're, we're all the way out of Afghanistan. 
safely. Um, he accomplished one of the campaign promises that got him elected. Uh, the, the messiness of the two weeks when it happened um, sort of have receded by a year of, of calm. Um, I, I think it, it and he stood up to the Pentagon um, and to the right wing um, sh shrillness machine. You know, I, I think all of that redounds politically very much to his benefit. Yeah, I, I would generally agree. I would say there were two two circumstances under which that might not. And the first one, I think, is increasingly unlikely. Something Jay mentioned last week that there'd be some sort of a, uh, a hostage type situation. And I just I, I thought that was somewhat unlikely last week. I think it's even more likely this week with the Taliban holding U.S. citizens and you know in exchange for whatever. And secondly, I would say if we see any sort of significant terrorist activity out of Afghanistan that is directed at the United States, I could see that as being politically damaging to uh, Biden administration and Democrats. But that aside, I tend to agree with your analysis there. Yeah, I agree 100 percent with both the caveats that you made. And I would also add, you know, the proof that this is going to redound to Biden's benefit is that every single president after George W. Bush, who got elected, um, oh, Biden, Trump and, and now Biden, um, they all ran on getting us out of Afghanistan. Yeah. That's certainly, you know, that's certainly the, the, what the public voted for every time. And so if, if Biden gets it done, I don't see how that could hurt him. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, let's take a quick break and then we will be back to talk about the latest developments with the coronavirus. Okay, so early this week, the FDA finally gave full approval to the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. And Immediately after that, or just about immediately after that, the Pentagon then mandated vaccinations for all U.S. troops, which they had been planning on doing as soon as there was full approval. And while there's not a similar mandate for federal workers and on-site contractors, those who aren't vaccinated are required to undergo weekly testing and they have various travel restrictions in place. Though after FDA approval, the White House has suggested that more stringent federal worker vaccine requirements on at least some employees may be on the way. Also this week, mandates were ordered in New York City and New Jersey schools, and they join a number of other school districts at this. But at present, there are still 20 states that are not only not mandating vaccination in any way, but that have banned any sort of proof of vaccination requirement. Um, Eleven of these bans are through a gubernatorial executive orders, nine through legislation. And as you might have guessed, Ken, all 20 of these states are Republican controlled, and they include the two states with the highest per capita COVID hospitalization rate. That's Florida, which is still an outlier and not a good way on that, and Alabama. So. Let's I, let's start with I was talking about those man uh, the uh, approval. Do you expect Ken to see more vaccine mandates now that there's uh, a fully FDA approved coronavirus vaccine? I, I think maybe some in the private sector. I, I don't think it'll have much effect, sadly, on public sector employees because um, for the reasons that you said that I think that's determined primarily by um, um, partisan ideological d divide that isn't really gonna be affected at all by the full approval. But um, the one thing that could happen in the private sector um, is that you may have had some private sector employers who were hesitant to require vaccines before full approval came through because they would have been taking a risk before that if, if they required their employees to get a, a experimentally approved vaccine, and then one of the employees got sick from taking the vaccine, 
um, the the employee might have been able to sue and say it was negligent of the employer um, to require them to take a vaccine that wasn't fully approved and that that, uh, caused them harm. Um, So that kind of argument disappears now. It, it, It prima facie can't be negligent for an employer to require employees to get fully approved vaccines. Um, so I think that that takes away one possible, there was that one you know, possible chilling effect on, on vaccine mandates in the private sector that I think is gone now. But that's really the only place I expect to see a big impact. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder, too, about about education, specifically our field, higher education. Uh, the latest data show that 805 institutions of higher education have some sort of a vaccine mandate. I mean, sometimes it's everyone. Sometimes it's just residential students and employees or some combination. And, you know, I, I we've just finished our first week back at NKU. Uh, you know, I saw we, we do not have a vaccine mandate here. We do have a mask mandate. But. Uh, I in the first week of classes, I saw plenty of students in close contact without masks and a number of people improperly wearing masks. I actually had a student in one of my classes who was perfectly uh, entirely masked until he wanted to speak. And then he pulled on his mask to talk. And I, uh, you know, stop him and say, um, no, you're missing yeah. the whole point here. But 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 it seems to me that in many instances, uh Public institutions, higher education institutions, have a little more latitude than K through 12 institutions in in putting these mandates in place. And do you expect, it, at least in that sector, which I think worries a lot of folks because the vaccination rate for for college age students is still not that great. I mean, do you expect to see any kind of significant movement there? You know, I don't expect to see it. I would like to see it, but um, <laughs> I, I I I think no. I, I think the the universities that um, have adopted mandates, you know, I think are um, largely looking at it primarily through the lens of health and safety. And the the universities that have not adopted mandates are balancing the health and safety issues against economic and political issues. And so I don't I don't think um, I don't think the balance is going to change that much. Right. Universities that are in places where they're going to be uh, politically criticized and called out um, if they adopt mandates and where they're going to lose a certain percentage of their students if they adopt mandates. Um, I, I just think a lot of universities are already in both politically and economically precarious states almost permanently now, and they're, they're not going to take that kind of risk. They, you know, even if they recognize you know, that, that they're, they're going to, you know, get a lot of people sick. I, I think, you know, I think that at least the threshold for those kind of universities is going to be, um, it doesn't really matter if we get a lot of our, our people sick. It really only becomes a big problem if they start dying. Right. You know, maybe maybe we'll have to take a move if they start dying. But if, if none of them die, but hundreds of them get sick, um, well, that's not going to be enough of a problem to justify the economic and political costs of um, ad- adopting a vaccine mandate. Yeah, you know, I also think there's the issue of, at least in some states, where institutions are, are at present free to impose mandates, but if they chose to do that, there would be probably a very quick reaction from the state legislature or the governor basically overturning that. And so it, there would there would be no no effect except for a lot of bad will on the part of the legislature. And if you're a public institution, that's generally not a good thing to court. Yeah, those are the kind of concerns I was talking about in, yep. under the rubric of political and economic yeah. concerns. Yeah. But I, I think that th- those are really going to predominate, at least until we see death waves among students and faculty. Which we 
certainly hope we don't. But Ho- yeah, hopefully we won't see. It's, it's, yeah, I hope we I, don't see it. But if we don't see it, we're never going to see mandates at all yeah. these remaining colleges. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I got to say, as somebody who, like I said, spent this last week on a college campus, I think a fairly typical campus, seeing students acting like students, it's it's hard for me to believe that we're not going to see uh, at least an increase in serious cases. That just, it, I, I certainly hope I'm wrong about that, but I unfortunately don't think that I am. Uh, You know, I also want to bring up this. President Biden essentially mandated vaccines for nursing home employees across the country by ordering that Medicare and Medicaid funding be pulled from institutions that don't comply. And so, you know, you might ask, well, could he or should he do the same thing for schools, for instance, by cutting off federal funding to those that don't impose vaccine mandates? And I guess I first wanted to get your take, uh, the legal take on that. I mean, is that something you think that is within President Biden's executive power? Would that sort of thing require legislation? What do you think about that? Well, if I knew you were going to ask me that uh, question, I I would have looked up the statute. It just kind of came to me. Yeah. yeah. I I don't think that question can be answered based on general legal principles. I think it would actually require looking at the particular statutes at issue. Um, So I I, I don't know. I, 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 um, I imagine that the, um, the the Biden administration took a look at the uh, Medicaid and, and Medicare statutes um, before it made that order. Um, I haven't I haven't taken a look at the statutes that govern things like federally guaranteed student loans to see um, what what kinds of conditions the the U.S. Department of Education could impose on recipients. But um, th- those are those are going to be statutory questions. If you if you ask me again before our next show or on our <laughs> next show, I'll, I'll answer it then. Or maybe this will be the thing that prods me to get back on Discord, and which I know I've been lazy about, and I can I can look it up and put an answer there. Well, well, let me let me ask you this. Let's let's assume that President Biden can do that or potentially can do that. And certainly he has been willing to do certain things that even he felt might be a stretch of an executive authority. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the eviction moratorium. If if there is some legal justification for that, do you think that would be good policy? Uh, to require students to get um, uh, vaccinated in order to be able to uh, get their student loans or, or, or to require um universities generally to have vaccine mandates um, in order to get whatever other federal monies they get? Yeah, I would say to Um, to require a vaccine mandate that would require all residential students and well, all students on campus and employees on campus with with uh, various exemptions for health and, you know, and possibly for religious reasons, I would say something along those lines. Yeah, I I tentatively think that would be good policy. Um, You know, I think. the, the faculty Senate at NKU, which which I'm a, a senator on, is going to um, vote to recommend something like that at our campus. And, and I think the 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 question of what's good for our campus, I, I can't really distinguish it from what would be good for everyone else's campus. So, yeah, I, I think I favor I think I do favor that. But I'd, I'd have to think harder about what the counter arguments yeah. would be. You know, I, I think one one thing in its favor is that it takes a lot of pressure off of off of administrators at, at these institutions who are facing these pressures, because if it's a nationwide mandate, all you can do is throw up your hands and say, what are you going to do? It, we, we can't lose our federal funding. And then it's out of their hands, basically. And I think there are. I would be willing to bet there are a number of upper level university administrators who would love for an edict to come down nationwide so that they they wouldn't have to make this decision because it's a it's a tough decision. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where most administrators would be. But, you know, you do have to think about the handful on the other side, right? So what happens if you've got administrators who are, you know, thinking of running for public office as Republicans mm. or something? And, they, and they're like, oh, this is my chance to, you know, be the, the courageous warrior who refuses all the federal money. Um, and then what that really means is that all the students that go there can't get their student loans and they, they um, you know, they're, they're negatively impacted by it. So I think there are those kind of practical considerations to think through before I could really come up with a, yeah. um, a, a complete answer to whether I'd favor that on a national level. Yeah, that, that seems that seems reasonable. And maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that. But I think I think you're right that uh, in general, I don't think President Biden is is really amenable to doing something like that unless the death toll or the serious hospitalization toll rose even more. And so I just you know, I certainly hope that we are not in that position, even if I do think on balance, it might be better policy. Okay. Well, I will say, just, oh, I'm sorry, if I can say one more. Just no. against against personal self interest, I will say that uh, I'm glad that President Biden extended President Trump's moratorium on um, student loan payments and student loan interest accruing. My own adult children are both benefiting greatly from that, but I actually don't understand where he gets statutory authority to do that either. I, I think that's actually a questionable move, but it's just that nobody really had an interest in challenging it. And it, it's actually kind of surprising. You would think somebody somewhere would challenge that, but but I guess you're right. Anyone withstanding would, would have, well, a lot to lose given student, the student loan situation. Yeah, right. And, and, and these days, the government itself is the lender, so it's only depriving itself of the interest money. It's not depriving any ah, commercial banks of any interest point. money. Good point. All right. Before, yeah. we move, before we move on to our next story, we'll take just one more break, and we will be right back after that. Okay, so this week, the House of Representatives passed a $3.5 trillion budget framework, and that follows the Senate's similar action earlier this month. And this paves the way for the actual appropriations bill, which will move through the Senate under reconciliation rules, meaning that Republicans won't be able to filibuster it. But it's fairly clear at least to me, that the final appropriation isn't likely to hit that $3.5 trillion mark. In the Senate, you've got moderate Democrats Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who've already indicated their unwillingness to support that whole amount. And there are nine to 10 moderate Democrats in the House who also have made it pretty clear that they have misgivings. And with the Senate evenly divided and Democrats having only a three-vote majority in the House, there are going to have to be some compromises between moderate and progressive Democrats to get the legislation to President Biden's desk. And I should add that it's unlikely this is going to get any Republican support whatsoever. And, you know, it's being seen as a win for House moderates. That's how most of the media has characterized it. And they've for weeks been threatening to vote against the budget resolution unless the trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, which just as a reminder, passed the Senate 69 to 30 on my birthday, August 10th, um, be taken up by the House before that $3.5 trillion budget resolution. Now, the moderates didn't get that exactly, but they did get a pledge by Speaker Pelosi that the infrastructure bill would come up for a vote by September 27th. And given that there will need to be some pretty substantial negotiations on the budget resolution, it's possible that that infrastructure vote will actually come up before the House budget authorization. Though, if we look at House Progressive, they're still insisting that these two measures are tied, linked together, and that the significantly larger budget authorization should be the priority. And I say significantly larger, I mean huge. To call it sweeping 
wouldn't be an exaggeration, right? Because it's currently constituted. This would provide for free preschool, free community college, long-term elderly care through Medicaid, dental, hearing, vision benefits and Medicare, lower drug costs through Medicaid bargaining power, an expansion of expansion of the child tax care credit, a whole bunch of investments in green energy and climate mitigation, uh, pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and a whole bunch of other stuff that I definitely don't have the breath power to include. It is it is totally sweeping. Um, so, Ken, what do you think about how this is likely to, to play out, I guess? Uh, you know? Oh, Pelosi's going to get everything that she wants. <laughs> um, the, 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 the group that you call the House moderates, I'd prefer to call them the House narcissists. Um, I don't <laughs> think they're moderate because they, they didn't actually have any substantive objections to anything in either bill. They just wanted to you know, throw, get their names out there and throw their weight around. Um, and their own constituents want both both bills to pass. So it's. It, I think that was just a clown show, really. And I don't think Pelosi actually negotiated away anything because the, I think one thing that was missed perhaps in the way you just explained it um, is when you talked about the September 27th deadline that, that Pelosi agreed to, um, that, that is, that's agreed to on the presumption that the the other the reconciliation bill the big bill will be passed in the Senate by then and the two two the two bills will in fact come up together but if somehow that doesn't happen um, the the end game isn't going to be that the that they vote the, the the bipartisan bill and not the reconciliation bill um, the end game is going to be that those nine uh, House narcissists are going to withdraw um, their their demand that anything be voted on September twenty uh, seventh because it would not pass on September 27th, right? So what's the point of forcing a vote on September 27th, even if they have a right to do it, if it if it just, you know, assures that um, the whole thing goes down in flames, which is the only possible outcome there? Because you're saying there's that, no outcome. So what's, say, yeah, there's no outcome. There's no outcome where only the bipartisan bill passes and, and, a, and the very large reconciliation bill doesn't pass. That can't happen. So, so you're basically, it sounds like you're saying that if by any chance that that bill did, uh, the uh, uh, the bipartisan bill came up on the 27th before the before the budget resolution was voted on that enough House progressives would vote against it that it would there would be no way it would pass is that that kind of what you're saying yeah yeah okay. yeah and and that would be so obvious to everyone that there'd be no way that anybody would hold anybody to the bargain to have it voted on uh, the, the 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 27th so you know right? the, the, yeah, yeah. I, I I gotta wonder. I mean, in terms of the specifics in that three point five trillion dollar, I I love I love a lot of that. I love pretty much, but not all of it. But there's a lot, but I love most of it. I mean, I'm a big fan of all, almost all of those. In fact, all of those things that I mentioned. But it seems to me the political calculation might actually be that uh, Pelosi is looking at the midterms and recognizing that with the status quo, if nothing changes, that there is a very, very strong possibility that the Democrats lose their majority. And the best they can do is try to do something really big to win over enough kind of swing voters to somehow keep their majority. And I'm wondering if that's your sort of thinking on the strategy aspect of this. Yeah, yeah. There's no purpose in passing the bipartisan bill alone. It's not big enough. 
right? They, it, it actually is a defeat for President Biden's entire agenda, right? So all, all of the Democrats are yoked together in the need to pass something very, very big, because something very, very big that passes is in fact going to yield a lot of concrete benefits to a lot of Americans, and it's going to raise Biden's popularity, and it's going to make him a successful president, and that's going to redound to the benefit of um, all the Democrats. Um, and, and there isn't really any other option. So I think Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden, they're all on the same page as each other here. And and the the, the House narcissists, the nine, you know, they, they really are trivial and irrelevant. And they'll they're not gonna actually take down the whole entire thing and and ruin Biden's presidency. I, I think the real significant players here are um continue to be Manchin in particular. I'd say not even cinema. I I'd put her she's the Senate version of the of the House narcissist caucus. But um you know, Manchin is in a unique situation, I think, because he does have, um, you know, a very Republican constituency and he, um, you know, he's elected in a state that, 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 that Trump won by 40 points. And I think he is going to have to um, show some independence in, in order for his constituency to stand by him. And I, I think that means he's going to be eyeballing this three point five trillion dollar bill with with a way to um, take, you know, to be able to say he took he significantly trimmed it, and that could mean it shrinks down to 3.2, 3.1. You know, I, I think that could definitely happen. But that you know, what, whatever's enough um, for Mansion to get Mansion to say, okay, I I've, I can say I've trimmed this, 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 and this, and now I'm going to vote for it, and all the other Dems go along with that, then he's going to vote for it. Cinema's going to vote for it, and whatever version comes over from the Senate. Um, it's going to pass the House. And and I think that that is all going to happen before September 27th. But if it doesn't all happen before September 27th, it's just going to ha- happen after September 27th. And the, 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 the deadline that you're that you're talking about is is uh, completely phony, I think. Yeah, that, that that sounds like a reasonable a reasonable way that this might actually play out, play out. I think one thing I'm, I'm pretty sure of is uh, the house, the house narcissists, as you call them, uh, have insisted. Yeah. And I think rightly so that they not be asked to vote on something that's not going to pass the Senate. And so I would expect that there's going to be plenty of back and forth between Pelosi and Schumer and both chambers there to make sure that to make sure that whatever the House ends up passing will actually meet with the uh, uh, with the mansion seal of approval, I, I would guess. And that would be your take, too, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think the House is going to pass anything different than what the Senate passes. Um, and I don't think the House is any hurry to, to vote on anything until the Senate votes on something. So um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that that's just exactly it, that the Senate will determine what's in the bill, that the House Narcissist Caucus is completely irrelevant. They're, they're going to vote for whatever's in the bill and they're going to vote for it whenever the Senate gets done with it. Um, but that it's really the real negotiations are um, uh, between Manchin and, and, and Schumer or even between Manchin and, and Sanders, who's the chair of the Budget Committee. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds about right to me. The only, way, only place I think we might disagree is you might have a little more faith in the uh, ability of this when it, when it passes, because I also agree with you that something is going to pass, that I don't know it's going to sway as many voters as much as some people might think. I think partisan views are so baked in that I'm not saying it's going to have no effect politically, but I think the effect is going to be very marginal. And I would be surprised even with this, assuming that all of it went through, that the effect was big enough that uh, the Democrats ended up in control of both chambers after the midterm elections. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you there. I, I think, um, uh, yeah, most Americans are not um, 
changing their votes based on what the what the government actually does, um, because people are very, uh, you know, they're in, into playing shirts and skins and stuff like that. And they don't just switch sides. But but I, I think uh, on the other hand, um, uh, I think the Dems, you know, I, I guess all the models would show that they're going to have a hard time keeping their House majority. They'll probably keep their Senate majority. But I think there's a lot of unpredictability in the, in the House, mainly because of the um, uncertainty of what's going to happen in, in redistricting. And I think what goes on in state legislatures is probably going to be more important than what goes on in oh, yeah. voting booths. But but it's all a little bit unpredictable right now in terms of how, how that'll play out in the 2022 midterm. Yeah, it is. It is still it is still early, uh, though, if I were a betting person, I wouldn't put a lot on the Democrats. I will say one final thing before we move on is that taking out of the political realm, I think that it's very likely that the window of opportunity for the Democrats is not going to be that large. And just looking at it from policy grounds, I just think that these things are the right thing to do in so many ways. And regardless of how it might affect the Democratic Party politically, I think this is just the right thing to do for, for well, hundreds of millions of Americans. Yeah, I agree. And I would add to that that doing the right thing um actually can yield longer term benefits politically, because when you're talking about benefits that people have never had, um, you know, they they won't know they won't know what they could have had unless they actually get it. But but if the Dems succeed in giving people benefits and then future politics revolves around whether the Republicans are going to take away benefits that people are currently enjoying, um, I think that's politically beneficial position for the Democrats to be in. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, we have time, I think, for one more story on the main show, and that is the eviction moratorium ruling. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled against the latest CDC eviction moratorium. And in a brief opinion, the court's six conservatives wrote that the moratorium was expansive and unprecedented and that it exceeded the agency's authority under the law. They concluded that while it is indisputable that the public has a strong interest in combating the spread of the COVID-19 Delta variant, Our system does not permit agencies to act unlawfully, even in pursuit of desirable ends. Now, the court's three liberals, that, of course, would be Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, they saw things differently. They argued that the moratorium, which they noted was more targeted than the previous CDC eviction moratorium, that it falls well within the agency's power, pointing out that while the law in question does list a number of specific measures that the agency may take, it clearly does not intend that list to be limiting or exclusive because the statute also gives the agency the authority to authorize other measures that in his judgment may be necessary. And the his here refers to the Surgeon General with the approval of the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. And the actual order here was given by the director of the CDC, which is part of the HHS. The dissenters also argued that had Congress wished to specifically constrain the power of the agency, they would have included language to that effect. But not only did they not do that, they included uh, this sweeping grant of authority. So, Ken, uh, uh, you didn't get a chance. We didn't get a chance to talk about the first uh, the first time this came up. So what do you think about this ruling? Well, it's it was pretty predictable. In fact, the the court itself um, telegraphed it in a in an earlier ruling yep. a few months earlier. Uh, the, the 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 legal framework for this is fairly complicated because Congress itself kept legislating uh, short term eviction moratoriums as part of the various um, COVID relief and COVID COVID stimulus bills, and these moratoriums would last a month or two, and then um, and then first President Trump and then later President Biden. 
Um, it, it would extend the moratoria after the um, congressionally authorized moratoria ran out. A, a lot of the um, uh, issue, the legal issue in the case, um, turns on the, the the statute that gives the 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 um, CDC uh, authority to um, uh, quarantine or, or to order um, emergency remedies when there's pandemics. I think I have the language up in front of me. It's it's a little bit dense, but it, it says. The Surgeon General is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases. Um, and so uh, that's really um, the, the issue is, is this an order that's necessary to prevent the induction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases. Normally in administrative law, the administration does get a little bit of deference when it interprets statutes like that. Um, but in this case, the Supreme Court had already previously said um, that it, it, it didn't think that, um, uh, that this was really analogous to any of the types of uses of that authority that had ever been made before in history, that it's usually about quarantining people who are actually sick, you know, whereas the eviction moratorium was going more into, um, um, you know, preventing um, large, large groups of people in certain locations from increasing their risk of being exposed to the to the virus and that that was just going too far. I'm not surprised at the opinion. I'm not surprised at the ideological breakdown. You know, I, I think this actually is one of these kinds of cases where the, the arguments on both sides have support in legal doctrine, and it's 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 not a crazy opinion, but um, it is one of those ones where it matters whether you have liberal judges or conservative judges. You could you could have I think anyone could have predicted that based on the the doctrine and the cases that are out there, um, the the conservative judges were going to vote that this was beyond the president's authority, and the liberal judges were going to vote that it wasn't. Well, you know, to me, it seems like I would be more. I guess, in a position to buy an argument saying that sort of the nexus between this eviction moratorium and the authority to prevent the transmission spread communicable diseases. The, the question on that grounds to say, you know, where is the direct linkage as opposed to say, well, this is just sweeping and unprecedented. And my reaction, my response to that is, well, that's the problem with the legislation. If you don't want to give an agency broad sweeping powers, don't put in words that say other measures as is in judgment may be necessary. I mean, that's about as sweeping as it gets. So if you want to look at someone, blame Congress for not being you know, specific enough. But you can't say that it seems to me you can't say the authority isn't there. It's more a case where you might be able to argue that the authority doesn't apply to this specific action because it's not connected to the. And I, I don't necessarily buy that, but I think it's at least a better argument, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I didn't read the second sentence, but there is a second sentence that limits it a little bit. And it says, um, for purposes of carrying out and enforcing such regulations, the Surgeon General may provide for such inspection, fumigation disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be infected, um, uh, or, or, and, other measure, and other measures as in his judgment may be necessary. So it still ends up with saying other measures as in his judgment may be necessary, but there is a list of examples of the kind of actions that Congress was contemplating, and perhaps an eviction moratorium is a little different in kind from, from, from the things that are on the list. So um, that's why I think it's it's a it, it is I think the 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 set, the statute is written in a way 
that requires some interpretation. Like you, I would have sided um, with the side that says, well, those words can bear the interpretation. They can bear the interpretation that the Biden administration was giving them. And it's really we need to give the, the Biden, give the president an, an, uh, an element of deference uh, if words are capable of, 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 of more than one interpretation of letting him choose which of the reasonable interpretations he wants to choose. So I, I would have been on the same side as you, but I, I don't think that the the arguments on the other side are are frivolous. You know, sometimes I think the court is very dishonest. Whereas I think in, in this particular case, the conservatives on the court are um, embracing kind of conservative legal reasoning um, in a way that I think is reasonably sincere. I don't I don't think they're just being dishonest here. Yeah, like because it seems to me that this doctrine of uh, you mentioned administrative discretion, it seems to me that the court is not necessarily all that consistent in, in employing, employing. No, they're thing, not, you know, and right. so, so yeah, it's clearly here. I don't know if it would have been different. It had been a, a, well, not necessarily a Trump order, but uh, maybe a different sort of order. But uh, I agree with you, I guess, in the end that this is, I had to do a lot of thinking about this before I sort of came down on the side of the court's three liberals. It's not the most outrageous Supreme Court decision I've seen, but in the light of everything that's going on, I guess I find it a bit, like like you, I suppose, disappointing but predictable. Yeah. The last thing that we say about, yeah, the, the, the whether courts give the same uh, measure of discretion to um, uh, Democratic presidents that they give to Republican presidents. No, I mean, th- that's one of the terrible things about the current Supreme Court is that they they tend to defer to, um, to the discretion of Republican presidents and not to the discretion of Democratic presidents consistently and repeatedly, including in this very case, because when it came up earlier, um, when Trump was still president and it did come up to the Supreme Court earlier, the, the vote breakdown was almost the same. But the one difference was um, Judge Kavanaugh actually crossed the line and voted um, to sustain Trump's moratorium, partly on the grounds that although he wasn't sure based on his legal analysis that Trump really had authority to, to do this eviction moratorium, he was going to defer to the president, um, especially given that the thing would expire in just a right. few weeks. Um, so so Kavanaugh actually said that the first time around and gave a deciding vote in the other direction. And it's really hard to see any difference between the two opinions other than just him saying, um, well, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to tr- give the benefit of the doubt to Trump because he's Trump and this is temporary. And then, you know, I'm not going to give the same benefit of the doubt to um, uh, Biden. You know, I, I read that. Uh, I guess it was a, con- a concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh on that that opinion because it was pretty short. But it struck yeah. me it struck me as odd. And, and you have a lot more experience with this than I do, obviously, that that a, a judge ruling that something is essentially okay, even though it's not, but because it's not going to last for that long. I mean, that, that to me just, that strikes me as odd. Maybe that's more common than I think, but it just struck me as just very, very strange legal reasoning. Yes, it is very strange and it is very unusual. The the one thing I would say to explain why Kavanaugh thought he could do that, I guess, is that um, the, the posture that this case came up was actually in the posture of um, the a request for a, a preliminary injunction in the lower court rather than like a, a, a final decision in Got a it. lower court. And so if someone goes running into court at the beginning of a case and, and says to the court, we haven't even litigated this case yet, but I need you to give me an injunction right now that preserves the status quo while we litigate the case, um, even before I've proved that I'm entitled to win, um, that's that that posture um, one of the factors that courts are rightly supposed to take account of when, they, when they're deciding, okay, should we give one party a preliminary injunction even before the parties really prove that they're entitled to win? Um, 
one of one of the, the the factors they're supposed to take account of is kind of the impact on the real world and whether there'd be um, um, disruptions or irreparable injuries um, because of changes that might happen in the real world while the lawsuit is pending um, that might have to be reversed at the end. So I think in 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 that context, um, I think that's the reason that Kavanaugh, um, you know, talked about okay. that because because he was because because he's actually being asked to take an appeal from a request for a preliminary injunction rather than appeal from a final decision in a case. Got it. And this is why it's good to have a law professor on the show. Thank you for explaining <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Ken. Yeah, but I still think that your, that your larger point is right, that in the administrative law context, I think this was just a sterling example of this idea that, you know, courts are supposed to defer somewhat to um, presidential interpretations of um, statutes that can bear more than one meaning, um, but not to unreasonable presidential uh, um, um, uh, um, in interpretations. And, uh, and that when, when Republican courts uh, apply that doctrine, um, they pretty much tend to think that all Republican presidents' interpretations are reasonable and that almost all Democratic presidents' interpretations are unreasonable. Funny, funny how that works, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that, and that actually funny note, uh, we will close this episode, but we still have more to talk about on our bonus episode. Ken and I are going to be talking about the uh, Biden versus Texas. That's uh, not like, well, Supreme Court case about the remain in Mexico policy. Uh, a federal a federal judge in Michigan sanctioning Trump attorneys and what this all amounts to, some other things related to that. The uh, first Fairly sweeping uh, calls for information from the House January 6th committee. At a minimum, we will get to that stuff. And if you are a Patreon supporter, that should be in your feed right now because we're releasing that right away. If you're not a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. You can get set up. Or, again, if you cannot afford to support the show right now but you'd like to hear about that, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, that really helps us out. Please subscribe. Also leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing episodes on social media. That makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. And if you just have a general question for us about anything or nothing in particular, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Discord for Patreon supporters. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find those links in our show notes. A special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.